This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Deuter is known for fit, comfort, and ventilation. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in good fitting backpacks, so you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists because even though my advice and opinions are free, I am improvising the whole thing. BetterHelp lets you message a licensed therapist day or night. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive one free week. It helps support the show and it helps support you. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Have you ever cut an exterior hole in your van? Me neither. Building out a van can be hard work, not to mention that table saws have a funny way of leaving you with fewer fingers than you started with. We'll ask Tommy Caldwell all about it when he returns my emails. I really can't be trusted with power tools since a drywall incident in 2005, but Mark and Anthony can. Roaming Ingenuity is a team of outdoor enthusiasts and tinkerers based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Whether you are looking for a custom van build or just need a little help with installing a roof vent, they can help. P.S. I never actually emailed Tommy Caldwell. Hey, before we start, I wanted to say a few things. First, I wanted to say thank you to Peter Darmy for his help with this episode. I seriously could not have done it without him. And to Matt, as well as everybody who's been brave enough to come on this podcast and tell their story. I also felt like it was an appropriate time to say thank you to all of the people who have really been looking out for me these past few months. I've had my own personal sadness to carry and process this winter, and I just want you all to know how much every message, every email, every phone call, even just good thoughts mean to me. The last few months have only emphasized the importance of sharing these kinds of stories, unscripted, painful, and painfully honest. Nine months ago, I acknowledged that the difficult things can be hard to talk about, but when we talk openly about our pain and weave it into a story, something really powerful happens. I really do believe that there's value in struggle. That's not just something I say. 
Nine months have gone by and I am blown away by how well received this project has been and I'm grateful that so many of you share the same vision. A quick heads up, nobody dies in this episode, but there is a lot of heavy discussion about drug use and addiction. We will talk a lot about mental health and eating disorders, and there is also brief discussion about suicide. Go to www.fortheloveofclimbing.com to see the resources available at the end of the transcript. Here is episode eight. Boulder has definitely grown a lot, but I mean, the climbing is eternal. It's one of the few places in the country where you can live as a climber and also have decent economic opportunity, I think. You know, if you come to Boulder and take it for what it is and take what you want out of it, I think it's a wonderful place. If you come here and you're like, I'm the best climber at my gym and wherever, and I'm going to go to Boulder and crush and get sponsored and this and that, you'd see a lot of people come here and they're like, oh, fuck this. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of in and then they're out because it is a huge climbing scene and there's a ton of talent. When you, if you stay in any place too long, you know, you start to feel like a uh, big fish in a little, little pond but yeah you come yeah. here and you're just like oh my god like yeah. I'm like I'm nobody kelp. yeah I'm <laughs> kelp at the bottom <laughs> swaying in the sea breeze while the fish come by and nibble at you Matt is far from kelp, though. He's been climbing for 30 years and is the editor-in-chief of a small publication called Climbing Magazine. Maybe you've heard of it. When you have things like editor-in-chief on a resume and you're living in Boulder, one of the most well-known climbing meccas in the U.S., it's sort of easy to just assume that you probably have your shit together. But we tend to forget to look past surface-level things like status and job titles. It's pretty easy to get caught up on the everyday things that are in plain sight. You know, normal life stuff. I have two young boys now and, you know, I need to earn money. I, you know, the days of like living in a Toyota Tercel eating ramen are, are over. Kids love ramen. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, maybe I don't need to be working then. <laughs> Although those are trans fat. So really, if I want to actually look after my kids, I probably shouldn't be feeding them trans fat and filled ramen. Does your wife climb? We used to climb together a lot, but then we you know, had two kids. Sometimes we meet at the gym, like maybe once a month if we're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I assume that we'll climb together again someday. I don't know when, but yeah. it, it would be lovely. Beyond a full-time job, raising a family and having endless climbing at his disposal, Matt doesn't live the quintessential, quintessential, quintessential boulder dweller's life. And he's pretty candid about it. You, you want to hear about suffering. I do. I want, to, I want you to like emotionally gut me and also all the people who will be listening to this. I, yeah. So I said, tell me about your suffering. Yeah. Like I said, I just, I came here to get emotionally gutted. Just got to get right to the heart of the matter. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. This is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is sponsored by Dirt Bike Climbers. Here's the show. (laughs) 
A recent study found that one in six adults in the United States take psychiatric drugs for the treatment of mental health conditions. Among the most commonly used for medications are benzodiazepines. When these sedative drugs were first introduced, it was widely claimed that they were non-addictive. This claim has since been proven false. Prescriptions for benzodiazepines increased by 67% between 1996 and 2013. Benzodiazepines, which are typically used for the treatment of clinical anxiety and other conditions such as panic disorders and seizures, have become one of the most commonly prescribed and misused classes of drugs. They operate widely in the brain, affecting things like emotional reactions, memory, thinking, muscle tone, and coordination. So a question, what are the real dangers of benzodiazepines? Because it sounds like they treat a lot of things that need to be treated. And are they dangerous? Matt, like so many others, knows firsthand the true impact that benzodiazepines have. Here's his story. You know, I deal with basically long-term neurological issues that were caused by being on benzodiazepine tranquilizers for years. You know, these are sedatives that are used to tamp down the nervous system. They go by common brand names. Valium, of course, is the one most people know. But these days, people definitely know about Clonopin and Xanax. You know, you hear about Clonies and Xans because people abuse the shit out of these drugs. They really have a nervous system muting effect. So if you have trouble with anxiety or seizures or sleep, these drugs will lower you down. And in that sense, they're effective, right? But in the other sense, like any drug, they're highly addictive. And over time, your body becomes habituated to their effects and your nervous system stops being able to regulate itself. And then when you do go to get off the drugs, your nervous system rebounds in a huge way. And that damage is is really long lasting. I haven't taken any of those drugs since 2005. So we're talking 13 years now and I still deal with symptoms. I was also on a lot of other psychiatric medicines that complicated and, and damaged my nervous system. And sort of during all that, I had issues with substance abuse too, with pain pills and, and alcohol to some degree, you know, marijuana too. So I was a, definitely a toxic sewer. See, the thing is, is this was so long ago that you would think I would be better. And I think that that is the struggle that, that I deal with is that I look, I look probably look okay to you, but I actually am in a lot of pain almost all the time. I just have learned not to, what's the word I'm looking for, manifest it really, you know? I just kind of stuff it down and get on with my day. You because just don't react to it. I don't react to it. There's not much I can do about it. Some days are good and some days are bad. We're but talking like physical. Like. Physical pain and often a lot of emotional pain too because, I mean, these tranquilizers, like what I'm saying is you go off of them and you need to go off really, really slowly but the medical community doesn't support that. And that was certainly my experience too. I was yanked off them really abruptly. And when that happens, your body doesn't have time to sort of re-regulate itself. And it gets into this mode where it can just kind of stay there for years and years and years until you heal. So, I, you know, I've been slowly getting better again and actually had gotten a lot better. I stopped the, the pills like in 2006 and up until 2013. That's probably like 90% of my old self. And then in 2013, I had a big setback. And so I'm five plus years into that now and, and still dealing with it. The main thing that I think I deal with is, is disbelief. I mean, if you take a really bad climbing fall and you're on the ground all fucked up and broken, it's pretty clear what happened. And people will rally and there will be hospital visits and fundraisers, that sort of thing. But if you have something that's internal and essentially invisible, that's a whole different story. 
you know, it's an entirely subjective experience. I'm the only one who could feel it. People are just sort of like, huh. So I'm very selective about who I climb with. Like, you know, I just make sure there are people who are supportive no matter what. Because there's days at the cliff where I'm just fucked. Like, I might be physically fucked or mentally fucked because of this. You know, like I said, it's nervous system hyperexcitability. It feels like I've been plugged into a wall. So I'll wake up on a bad day and I'll feel like electricity is coursing through me. Anxiety is off the charts, vibrating. Like I have an internal tremor that's basically like my central nervous system just firing and firing and firing, which in turn makes my muscles fire, which in turn makes them feel like they're on, on fire. And I'm all locked up, you know, horrible anxiety, can't think. And it's like, shit, I got to get through the day somehow. And then if you go climbing in that state, like sometimes climbing makes it better. It kind of can break me out of the pattern, sometimes it, it makes it worse. And I just don't know. So I think the big thing, you know, as a climber is just people who I climb with know about it so that they know I have this limitation. So no mountain project partners? I, partner finder. <laughs> I think you're rolling the dice on that one no matter who you are. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, maybe you've encountered it too. I mean, I think you've sort of talked about it in some of your podcasts. There's just this sort of machismo in the climbing community where people, it's just sort of assumed that we're all young, healthy, and fucking going for it all the time. And that's sort of the default, you know, and that's sort of a portrayal in the media. And that's sort of the lore of the sport, sticking your neck out there and manning up and stacking up. And it's like, it's not that black and white. Life is never that simple. So I think, you know, that's, that's the one thing that's been challenging for me is finding how to live within my story, within kind of a culture that's a little bit macho. Being hard and soft at the same time, that's so much of who I am, but I would say that that is not the norm in climbing culture and just society in general. Right. You know, like, it'd be like people can't comprehend how you can do that, how you can yeah. have those two things coincide. Yeah, like, how can you be a rock climber and be scared? It's like, well, how can you not be scared? And then if you have a nervous system on top of that that won't let you not be scared, yeah, what do you do with that? 30 years a climber, Mac grew up in Albuquerque, and he later moved to Boulder for college. I, I landed myself in this mess. You know, I don't blame anyone else, but this, I think, all started with an eating disorder. So when I was in my teens, um, I really got heavily into rock climbing. There were no gyms at that point, but I'd always kind of wanted to climb, and I'd done some climbing with the, my dad's college roommate. Starting from age 12, I'd go out to Olympia, Washington in the summers and climb with him. If I'd come back to Albuquerque, there was nowhere to climb. And then when I was 15, I was enrolled in one of those things in the 80s. Um, it was called the Challenge Program. Like, I stopped going to school. It was basically through a psych hospital. It was like outpatient thing. Because I had transferred from a private school to a public school. And I got to the public school, and I was just like, holy shit, this is overwhelming. Like, I felt like I was going to get beat up all the time. I was kind of like a punk rock kid with a mohawk and stuff. And it was I can really, see that. Yeah, <laughs> it sucks, right? Yeah, you're a target if you're walking around as a, as a punk rock kid. And I just got really gripped and I wouldn't leave the house and I got terrible agoraphobia. So they enrolled me in this program and the, and the program sort of helped me. And I just really was like, oh, this is it. Like I'd climbed some before that, but as soon as I was able to go climbing regularly, it was clear that that's what I wanted to do. So I got heavily into it. And probably around the time I was 16 or 17, um, I mean, this was the 80s. Like people were emaciated, you know, you'd pick up the magazines. And it was definitely even worse than it is now. And, and I think it's still a thing now. Like no one, no one talks about it, but obviously it's still a thing. 
What Matt is referring to is the relationship between body image, weight, and performance climbing. There was, and still is, this misconception that people have to be skinny or a specific weight in order to climb well. And I am neither confirming nor denying that donuts probably don't actually help you send, and things like strength-to-weight ratios can be critical physical benchmarks for climbers with bigger goals, but there are good ways and bad ways to get there, which Matt had to learn. And he did. I think Christian Griffith came to Albuquerque. He was one of the first Americans to go over to Bukes, France, and climb. Um, and he did a slideshow, and he had all these photos of him, and he wanted to do this route shuka. And he and it, he sort of he talked about like dealing with his own eating disorder and having to get really skinny for this route. And you know, I think it was Jibé Trebeau who was like the leading sport climber at the time. At one point, told Kristen that he was too heavy to do shuka. So Kristen goes on these crazy diets to crag eating this like little. Um, Ziploc baggies full of dried oats and like milk powder or something. They were choosing starvation rations in order to do these routes, and they did. They came back having done all these 13Ds and Cs and 14As, like stuff that was really cutting edge at the time. Um, and I remember seeing this slideshow, and I don't think Christian was necessarily espousing having an eating disorder, but it, it certainly was on the table. And same with that article. I mean, you can go back and find that article climbing. And, you know, it's like a pretty seminal article because it's one of the first ones that sort of introduced the whole concept of European sport climbing to, to American readers. But I remember I just sort of was like, oh, okay. And I really, around age 16 or 17, started eating in a fucked up way. Like, starved myself for four or five days, then binge and overeat, you know, food limiting. Like, just just kind of the standard stuff. And, yeah, I kept it pretty well hidden. I think my parents suspected to a degree because my mother had had an eating disorder. But I kind of hid it. And I did that for a long time. Uh, And then I moved up here to Boulder in the early 90s. And, you know, it's like we were talking about, Boulder's a pretty overwhelming, concentrated climbing culture with lots of very good climbers. And I remember my freshman year in college, I think I dropped down to like 125 pounds. It was the wrong weight for a male who's five foot seven. And, you know, I'm like kind of a stocky Russian guy. I don't think I knew how fucked up I was. I would look in the mirror and I was like, yeah, I still got to lose a little weight. It's like, I don't know what I would have lost, you know? But I think just years of that bad eating and my weight bouncing around, by that following fall, I started to get really bad anxiety and I started to have panic attacks. If you've never had a panic attack before, it is really hard to know what it's like. I definitely remember my first and only one. My heart was racing. I was flushed and lightheaded. I thought I was having a stroke or a heart attack. And I remember being on the phone with a friend at the time who assured me in a very calm voice, you are okay, you aren't having a heart attack. Later, only to tell me that he totally thought I was having a heart attack. But the important thing to know is you're not going to die even though you might feel like you will. The hard thing to know is that it can take years of therapy, education, and understanding the cause before you can really grasp what's going on. It's horrible. Yeah, it's a horrible thing. And then you kind of quake in fear at the specter of it. Yeah, I think the first one I had, I was like on the Stairmaster at the health club where I was living and I just kind of like went too hard and I came home and I was kind of dizzy and sweaty and I just started sort of like hyperventilating without realizing it, freaking out. Um, I'd almost kind of died of dehydration a couple months before that. So I was like, oh, I'm really dehydrated again. I called the ambulance 
and they took me in and I was completely fine and the nurse is like, you know, they're ER nurses, they're annoyed when you come in for a panic attack because I'm sure they see a lot of drug-seeking behavior or malingering and, and she just kind of kicked me out of my ass. She's like, you had a panic attack, get out of here. And I was like, the fuck is a panic attack? I don't know what that is. Um, you know, but I was really freaked out and I went home. I think it happened right before Christmas break. I went home over Christmas break and I didn't leave my room, didn't want to exercise because I didn't want to get my heart rate up. Like I was just terrified of, of stimulation and it, I had to work through that. You know, I stayed in college, I went back, um, started therapy. And at that same time, I also started to see a psychiatrist, which I think was the, you know, the biggest mistake I made. This was the 90s and this was the whole like listening to Prozac, all these SSRIs are new, like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You know, there's all these quote unquote new cleaner antidepressants and drugs like that. And I sort of bought into that whole myth that you need those, you know, because of these quote unquote chemical imbalances or you need these in addition to talk therapy. If I could go back now, you know, 26 years ago, I would say go to therapy but clean up your diet, do yoga, and stay the fuck away from those quote-unquote medications because they're gonna unravel you down the road. But that was sort of my entry point into psychiatry. At that same time, you know, I think I started to take Paxil, which is an antidepressant, but the doctor also gave me Ativan, and he, he was good and thoughtful about it, and he said, only take these as needed. You don't want to take them every day. If you're having a really high anxiety day, or you can't sleep, take these. And, you know, I kind of kept that relationship with them, but, you know, I also noticed I had an affinity for these drugs, but I don't think that that's unique. You know, I don't believe necessarily that there's an addictive personality or that if you've abused other substances, you're gonna latch on it. I mean, so much of it is biochemical, like take a Mormon grandmother who's never had a drink in her life and you can give her these drugs for two weeks and she will be physically addicted. And they sink their hooks in you, they work on you on a neurochemical level and sort of no matter how strong a proclivity you have towards substance abuse, at a certain point, your body will need them in order to not go into withdrawal. I definitely noticed an affinity for them. I liked that they knocked out anxiety because who wants to feel an anxiety? You know, nobody. It's horrible. You know, I didn't always just use them. I definitely sometimes would stockpile them and take more than I needed, or I would kind of ask the doctor for more. You know, I'd get into that kind of behavior. And then my senior year in college, someone I know was getting Valium. And I just don't think I really knew the dangers, but I started really abusing Valium, like going to raves and I don't know, it was just sort of this nihilistic period, you know, a bunch of us were in on it and um, became really addicted and then stopped cold turkey. Going cold turkey means quitting abruptly with no weaning period and no professional help. Most people assume that they can stop using a drug just as easily as they started taking it, but that's not the case with benzodiazepines. Going cold turkey is a shock to the system. It puts your body into overdrive while your brain tries to reset its normal neurotransmitter production levels. And what we're trying to say is when it comes to tapering, you cannot stop cold turkey. It's really risky. People can have seizures, convulsions, paranoia, they've had heart attacks, it can even trigger psychosis. Benzo withdrawal has even been linked to death, as reported by the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology. And that's what it did to me. Like, I've, 
I stopped taking them, and three or four days later, I stopped sleeping, and I was like, I'm losing my fucking mind. Like, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know that I was taking so much of these drugs. I think I was sometimes taking eight or ten a night that I needed to taper. And because I was young and physically strong, like, my body could withstand it. Fortunately, I didn't die. But, yeah, it, like, I really lost my mind for three, four, five days, something like that. I was hearing my voice kind of being called out from random places in the sky, seeing things, not sleeping, felt like the ground was kind of made out of tar, like when you walk on a really hot street in the summer, and ended up going to my therapist. I finally admitted what had happened. He's like, oh, you can't do that. And I ended up in Boulder Community Hospital. I got free of all that. But it was, you know, I should have known then. It took me months to feel better again. At that time, I was only 22 or 23. Like That's a, scary when you're that young. Yeah, it was not a good experience because yeah. you just wonder, am I going to sort of be out of my mind for the rest of my life right, right. or what's going to happen? But yeah, it, it took a really long time to heal. Like I, I moved to Europe and my sleep was all fucked up and then I had jet lag and then I wasn't sleeping. Yeah, but I, you know, that, that initial experience, I, I remember like some nights I wouldn't fall asleep to 3, 4, 5 a.m. You know, just it totally like messes up your biorhythms. You know, so I, I dealt with that then. And then I, I, I stayed away from those drugs for the most part for a while. But then I, I moved back to Boulder in 97 or 98. And I'd been clear of all psych meds. And I, I, started, I was feeling anxious again. I think probably because I was really skinny because I'd been climbing at Rifle. Got back on Paxil and then back on Benzos. And I started to take them daily. And, you know, I just don't know how complicit I am. I mean, that part of me was probably like, hey, cool. I don't have to deal with this anxiety problem anymore. And I just didn't, I had, there was no long-term thinking, you know. But at the same time, the doctor, you would hope, would be aware enough to think that here's this guy in his, like, mid-20s. He can't be on these things all his life. We have to figure something else out. And we never really did. But over time on those, you know, I was taking two milligrams of Ativan, so it was one milligram twice a day. Over time, my anxiety started to get worse and worse. And what happens with these drugs is you go into something called tolerance withdrawal, which is where you basically have built a tolerance to your dose, which means your body is kind of in an acute state of need of a higher dose. So you have withdrawal-like symptoms. But you mistake those for a worsening of the condition that you're trying to treat. So I would have much worse anxiety, horrible panic attacks, sleep issues. And you just sort of accept it. And I mean, you know, the mainstream narrative is that some of us are born with chemical imbalances and that we need to treat them all our life with drugs, which I, I, don't, I don't believe to be true. But I, I didn't know at that point to really do any sort of deeper research. You, you go to doctors, you trust doctors, and then after they damage you, that's usually when they find out they actually don't know what they're doing. And a lot of them are taking big pharma money or they're not really researching the drugs they're giving out. And you know that these pharmaceutical studies are totally skewed. It's a for-profit industry. And the best way to make money off you is to keep you perpetually sick and to keep you perpetually yoked to their chemicals. You know, it certainly could have been on me to get more of the bullshit, you know, but a lot of the bullshit was me, so I wasn't mature enough to face it. I was like, I'm a climber, I was doing a lot of risky stuff, I didn't want that to change, you know, I was smoking a lot of pot, I was taking these pills. It was comfortable, it was warm, it was cozy, and you don't want to get yanked out of that. You don't want to be told, hey, you're going to have to go through years of horrible fucking withdrawal, and you're going to have to suffer, and you know, you're like, I'll just, I'll just stay here, I'm good, you know? Yeah, I mean, and... and I'm sure there's a lot of denial about having a problem anyway, but you know, it was this whole kind of oleo of different things. It was like prescribed drugs, psych meds, my own drug abuse, 
you know, the risks I was taking out climbing at that point, I was doing a lot of high ball problems and free soloing and long things alone in the mountains. So I think if anyone could have extricated from that, it would have been me. You know, over the years, I, I built that tolerance to those pills. And then you start to get something called interdose withdrawal, which is withdrawal symptoms between each pill. And I was just sort of living on this roller coaster of like, I'd take the pill, I'd feel pretty good, and then it would wear off and I'd have horrible anxiety. And I just couldn't, I never, I don't know why, I never put two and two together. I'd be like, every day around two, I have horrible anxiety. And it didn't occur to me, I'd take the pill at like nine when I wake up or eight, it wears off by one, and at two, I need another pill. I was just like, I don't know, at two, I get really anxious. You know, so it just kept worsening and worsening and worsening and then eventually working with his doctor my dose of these benzos climbed until it was four times what it had originally been until i was taking four clonopin a day and then it was like two of the big xanax which was like the equivalent of the amount of valium i'd been abusing and then i began to uh to take a bunch of vicodin too i mean it all just kind of came to a head and i was like okay no more like i was fat and moody and not really anchored in reality and angry a lot of the time and couldn't climb and had sort of lost everything. So I was like, I got to get off these drugs. So I got off the opiates myself. And the benzos, I was like, I'll work with this doctor to taper. And I was like, it shouldn't be too bad. Like maybe these aren't even as bad as the opiates. I just had no idea. So in 2005, I began to taper, going pretty rapidly. But at that point, you know, I'd been on them every day for seven years. There wasn't much information. There's a lot of information on the internet now. The Ashton Manual, which is available online, gives an overview of what benzodiazepines do to your body, how to withdraw from them, and offers tapering schedules. It also describes the problems with the cold turkey withdrawal method and gives acute and protracted symptoms. In addition, there are Facebook groups that can help you figure out how to titrate your drugs and how to taper slowly and safely. People now, like when they find the support, they go really slowly and a lot of them do okay. But I didn't, and I went really quickly, and it just turned into this absolute nightmare because as I tapered, again, I had that nervous system hyperarousal and all these horrible symptoms. And I'm going to the psychiatrist, and he's saying, sounds like you're bipolar, sounds like you're having mixed states, which is a cross between depression and mania. We were trying these other different antidepressants and mood stabilizers. And, you know, the thing is, all I was was chemically sick, and more chemicals were being poured on. And this led to these sham diagnoses. Ended up in, you know, it was three different psych wards that fall. And then at certain points, I was on five or six different medications that I didn't need. And by the time I left the last hospital, they'd gotten me off of benzos. But I left there on lithium, which is a horrible, terrible drug. And really dangerous if you're a climber because it gets in your bloodstream. And if you get dehydrated, you can get lithium toxicity. So, I mean, completely risky for the kind of life we like to lead. I was on Neurontin, which has been a huge lawsuit over the company. I, I forget who made it. But they um, they were just pushing on, like, dementia patients. And they are pushing on everyone for anything. So it was just sort of like catch-all drug. It was like, oh, you don't feel good? Take Neurontin. So I ended up on that and um, a really dirty old antidepressant, a tricyclic antidepressant, and they're the ones that cause like heart problems and heart palpitations and dry mouth and dizziness, like, you know, these old dirty drugs from the 50s and 60s. So I'd finally started to do my own research to read like a lot of these anti-psychiatry books and things like that. And I was like, I'm pretty fucked. Like, if this, what these books say is true, 
I've dug a really deep hole here, or a really deep hole has been dug. And I came out of that hospital, and I flew back here to Boulder, and I was alone over Christmas, and I tapered the lithium, and I tapered the neuron, and then nine months later, I tapered the antidepressant. And meanwhile, I was in the throes of acute benzodiazepine withdrawal. I mean, it's just, it's really hard to describe, but it, it was way worse and has been way more terrifying than anything I've ever encountered out climbing. I mean, one of the worst things I've encountered, I mean, I've spoken to other people who've been through it, people who've lost their children, people who survived cancer, this was worse. For a year and a half, I probably only slept two or three hours a night. Auditory hallucinations, hyperacusis, which is just your senses are too sort of finely attuned. So bright light really hurts, strong smells are really overwhelming. Obsessive thoughts, sweats, shaking, tremor, muscle weakness, heart palpitations, tinnitus, you know, that ringing in your ears. There's lists of hundreds of symptoms. And when you're in acute withdrawal, you have, you'll have dozens of them at once. It must have felt endless to you. Oh, it did. And it still does because I still deal with it. But yeah, there's nowhere to hide. I think that's the big problem. Imagine that you've just topped out a really long alpine route and you're on a summit with no trees and you're in the middle of a lightning storm. It's that sort of feeling, except constantly. Especially when you can't sleep, because sleep at least is some sort of psychic relief. You're like, I'm going to have dreams, and I'm not going to be in pain while I'm asleep. But sometimes I didn't even get to sleep. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot better now. But you know, a lot of people who go through this, what I've seen in talking to people and what you read about, is there are a lot of suicides. And there's also a lot of people who don't escape because they continue to believe the con conventional narrative that this is the return of your original problem. You know, They're in this state that is indescribably bad, way beyond anything they've ever experienced. And they're still going to their doctor whom they trust. And the doctor's like, oh, this is just who you are. And people lose hope and they end up believing the doctor's rhetoric and they end up polydrugged. I mean, there's we're so complex, all of us. There's so much been written about this. Almost all of it is, is trauma, childhood trauma. Like people dissociate, they get lost in their own thoughts. And all these fucking imaging studies, whether this is a brain of a schizophrenic, this is a brain of a depressed person, it's all horseshit. Like they don't know. They don't know the barest thing about the human brain. And, and you know, and mu much less the soul. I mean, the, the psyche and the soul. Like psychiatry is so rigorous in this sort of chemical approach to things. It just doesn't account for anything else. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people find their way to these drugs through general practitioners, people who don't even have any experience with helping someone who's in emotional distress, you know, things like that. And, you know, I don't think it's anyone's fault in particular, but I think there is also a lot of greed and evil. I mean, there's definitely a lot of complicity too, you know. It's, it's like if you do a lot of research, the way these drugs are marketed and tested and the way that they present the fact that we all, quote unquote, need these drugs. I mean, everyone makes their own decision, but, you know, you watch the nightly news and they're pushing psychotropic medications on people. You know, I mean, us in New Zealand are the only two countries in the world where there's direct consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals. I mean, it, a lot of the motivation is profit. It's not helping people. And, you know, maybe this drug helps one person. Maybe it gives 20 other people awful side effects, like kills their liver. It ruins their life. It ruins their life, like mine. Yeah, it's completely changed the trajectory of my life. And, you know, I think a lot of these doctors, these psychiatrists, maybe believe they're helping, but their toolbox sucks, you know? Their toolbox is full of poison. Until I started to really have acute tolerance problems and things like that, I was pretty functional. Like I was, I was somehow functional, you know, but when they really stopped working and when I was totally strung out, my anxiety was crippling. I had to leave a job. I was working at Rock and Ice at the time. I had to leave. I was like, 
maybe this job's giving me this anxiety. And then I left and then the anxiety was still there. Like 2006, when I was incredibly sick, one month out of the hospital, I took a job back at climbing. Jonathan Thieska came back on as editor and he hired me. And I was like, well, I'm really sick. And I told him, and he's like, yeah, I want you there. And I was like, well, maybe the structure will help. And it has, you know, for a while there, it, it took me a while. Like you really have to bring your brain back online too. Like, you know, when I was acutely sick, which was over Christmas 2005 into the year 2006, I couldn't do much more than watch television. And even that, I had trouble comprehending it. It was often too disturbing for me. Like you're really, really sensitive. I was just reading like stupid little articles in like dumb magazines, like Parade Magazine. And then over the months, I was able to start to read stuff in The New Yorker again, and then I was able to read books again. But your attention span is just shattered because you're in so much pain and so much information's coming at you. So, you know, in the face of all that, it, it was certainly hard to work and, and still can be. But uh, I find it also gives me at least some structure, something that's sort of outside of the suffering that, that lets me reorder my mind. Professionally, it was hugely disruptive. It affected Matt's jobs and relationships ended over it. In 2007, Matt met Kristen, his wife, and told her what he was going through. By then, he had begun to heal, but then he got sick again in 2013. I was freelance at that point, and luckily I was able to just, most of my work was at home, and I was able to just like, okay, been through this before, and just get the work done, you know, but how does it affect me now on a day-to-day basis? There's days sometimes where I still have to go home, like early mid-afternoon, because I feel too sick, you know, and I'll go home and I'll lie there and maybe take a 20-minute nap, which I'm really lucky to be able to do. That's the other fucking torture, too, is when you can't sleep, you also can't nap. So at one point, I remember, I think some of the worst periods, I would go like a, a week without sleeping, and I couldn't even nap during the day. But now at least I can go home and take a nap and then feel a little bit better afterwards. It really was hugely disruptive. And when I hit the setback, it was really disruptive too because our son was only a year and a half at that point. And then a year and a half later, our second son came along. He's not sleeping, you're not sleeping. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, you have the logistics of having two kids, the stress it puts on a marriage. Like, I also got very, very sick then. My immune system kind of went south on me, probably because of the stress of going into the setback again, and you know, and the kids bringing home viruses and stuff. And I got so sick, uh, you know, definitely during various points of this, I've had to quit climbing, and not just for like a week. Oh, you know, my fingers are kind of sore. It's like not a year, year and a half. And, and and at the worst, I think in 2015, yeah, I didn't climb for about a year and a half. I couldn't. I mean, at one point, I was too weak to even walk around the block. So this stuff like it lays you out, and you know, until you get better, you have to sort of restructure your life around it. And it's very variable too. Like you don't know how you're going to feel on any given day. So it's hard to sort of like lock into plans. I mean, I don't really ask people for support. All I ask at this point is that they believe me. That's all mm-hmm. I care about. That's the one thing I can't fucking deal with. It's like, if when people don't believe me, you know, and again, I don't need to be validated. I just need to not have to defend myself. Not that it's necessarily important to Matt that people empathize with what he goes through, but it does provide a context in which he has to operate. And when he comes up against people who don't believe him or worse, use it against him, it not only impedes his healing, but it can also be infuriating. There's nothing wrong with mental distress. It's there for a reason. I mean, that's the thing I've learned, you know, through all this, through trying to to chase these dragons of treating it. There's a reason we feel these things, right? I mean, there's a reason that people have psychotic breaks. It's trauma or some sort of dissonance in their life. Or maybe someone put LSD in their orange, you know? I mean, things can go south. And there's a reason people get incredibly 
depressed or anxious. I mean, look at how we live. It's out of whack with nature. I mean, I think as climbers in particular, we understand that. Like as a climber, you can go outside and you feel really good simply because of where you are and what you're doing. And we're incredibly lucky to have that, right? And I think that is mostly what people felt until the Industrial Revolution. You were outside, you're moving your body, you're connected to the earth. I mean, we're animals and we have this sort of non-animalistic way of living and all these rules that we're supposed to follow. And then there's countries and places in the world where people are a lot happier, but America is completely fucked up. I mean, I just don't know how you could live here and not be depressed or anxious unless your head is up your ass and you're not paying attention to what's going on and you're not informed. I mean, it's, it's, it's a travesty, right? I mean, modern life is kind of a travesty. Like the things that I have to think about are whether my children are going to be shot at a playground or going to a mall. That's not right. And, you know, how could you be aware of these things in the world and not feel anxious. So what I've learned is it's a very natural and, and almost a healthy thing. You know, it's like there's a there's a reason we feel what we feel. And if you try to medicate that away, the feelings won't go away, but the manifestation of them in your body will go away while the drugs are working. And then when the drugs stop working or when the drugs make you really sick, you'll be dealing with chemical withdrawal and unresolved emotional issues. You know, it's just it's really hard, yeah. And I mean, you know, I guess I don't I don't think that the climate community is necessarily any better or worse than other communities. I mean, obviously there's a lot of darkness in it and a lot of people I think sort of use climbing as a catharsis, but you know, might as well it could be shuffleboard. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just one more tool that people use to escape and it's just sort of hard to blame people for wanting to escape. So, you know, I think yeah, I mean some of some of what I did was I sure triggered this sort of panic response in my body by starving myself. But I think a lot of it too is just, at least for me, is having an outlook in which, you know, I'm trying to pay attention to the world around me. And the more you pay attention, sometimes the harder it is to not feel darkness. It can be difficult to pick up the phone and ask for help, but calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is always free and confidential. If you experience suicidal thoughts and don't know who to talk to, call the toll-free 24-hour hotline of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to be connected to a trained counselor at a suicide crisis center nearest you. Even though I still have no idea what I'm doing, things are happening. And if you'd like to help out and support this podcast, please check out patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can sponsor us for as little as $1 per episode. It really helps keep this podcast going. And I'm so grateful for all of your help. Special shout out to Cameron McAlpine because he makes this thing sound good. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast, 
A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. And a big shout out to Roaming Ingenuity, a team of outdoor enthusiasts and tinkerers based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time.